Hello again, everyone, and welcome to episode number 44 of Enterprise Linux Security. How are you doing, Zhao? I'm fine, Jay. As always, a pleasure to be here with you. And today we have another fine episode for us. <laughs> like, this is great. This is a lot of fun. Can we just like yeah. bang out like 10 episodes, like one after another <laughs> until, you know, for the next five or six hours? I wish, I wish. I know we can't do yeah. that, but we're going to have a great episode regardless. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about a couple of shorter stories before we actually go into the, the main meat of the episode. Yeah. Um, so we need to touch on the, the elephant in the room, which is, we called it. So if you watched the show last week, we mentioned about we mentioned that the hacker who hacked the Uber and the Rockstar would be caught pretty soon because he was bragging everywhere. We yeah. were aiming for three to four weeks. The police was actually much faster than that. Three or three days after that, they announced an arrest in London. Uh, like we were talking before, I don't know what they give in the water in London, but uh, apparently all the hackers come from London. Um, it was the Lapses group a few months back. It's this guy right now. I don't know if it's the same person or if it's just a neighbor who actually learned from the same book. But yeah, the, the London police announced an arrest related to this like four days after the, the breach happened. Yeah, it, it's like when I was 17, what was I up to? I was um, playing PlayStation, <laughs> um, listening to CDs, reading comic books, hang, you know, hanging out with my friends. I didn't think to hack. Then again, I didn't get my first computer until I was 19, so I'm not really sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe that saved me from becoming one of, you know, someone like that. I don't think I would be, but I'm just saying. Um, but it's it's interesting what teens are doing nowadays versus, you know, what they were doing when when I was one. Um, they're they're just hacking into computers. I, I only saw um, hacking in movies, and it was incredibly unrealistic. <laughs> it was just like uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Just almost like a cross between hackers and the, the movie Hackers and Star Wars, where you have all these things flying around. And yeah, it's not like that. But uh, so no, yeah, we totally called it. Yeah, <laughs> we called this one. Um, and like we said last week, it didn't really require all the fancy technological advances and all of that, or newfangled code or new exploits that are top of top shelf or something like that. It was just a phone and calling uh, random employees until somebody clicked the, the, the link. So, yeah. Right, yeah, and that's that's often what hacking is nowadays. Not to say that there's, you know, um, no such thing as really advanced hacks. Obviously it happens, but more commonly, it's a little on the boring side, um, which boring can be good, especially in IT, but you know, in, in real life, not everything is ex is exciting as it is in Hollywood. And in this case, yeah, we called it. Uh, the individual was not named, so all we I think all we know is that it's a the suspect. I should say the alleged suspect is a 17 year old um, Oxfordshire. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Oxfordshire. Yep. Um, pretty interesting how the police reacted so quickly and found him so quickly. That's it is. An yeah, it really point is. There. Yep. Okay, so this was just a brief, we called it, moment. Um, moving on to the f to the next short story. Um, last year, we talked about um, a government-mandated um, requirement around software bill of materials. The software bill of materials is basically a list of all the libraries and all the, the includes that you do in your code so that when you try to sell a service or a, a, software, a piece of software to a government-related agency, you need to, to provide the list of all the things that you pull in as dependencies on your program. That should make it easier to audit whenever a new breach happens in one of the libraries to immediately look at that and see, okay, my program is affected because we use that as a dependency or it's not affected because we don't use that version, we use a different one, for example. So um, a couple of weeks back, and I only saw the, the news pretty recently, but a couple of weeks back, there was this memorandum released by the government, the US government, where they actually turned that um, which at the time I assumed was already in effect, but it wasn't, which turned that guidance from last year into an actual mandated requirement for the, the government agencies. So if you're interested in do, if your company is interested in doing any type of business with the federal government, federal agencies, basically any, any level of government, you will have to provide, in addition to that software bill of material, you will have to provide something called a certi an attestation certificate, which is basically a document that you can create in your own company that says, 
okay, this is how we create software. We follow these steps. We follow, we use these tools, these libraries. This is the process that we use to create the binaries, to create the code. And we, as you can see, we comply with all the security requirements and all of that. Of course, this is not just based on trust. You don't just blindly say that and then you know, everything is right. There are some provisions that deal with uh, external audits and all of that to make sure that you're actually telling the truth when you say that. Um, but that is now a requirement. So if your company is interested in doing any type of uh, government contract at the software level that touches on IT at any level, you will have to provide something like that. I almost wonder if there's go going to be that one company out there that's going to be somewhat of an a-hole and they just uh, uh, open up in Notepad the uh, .git modules folder or file, I meant to say, inside the repository and just print it. You know, here it is, and it's got all the modules that they pull in. Um, I'm not saying I'm not trying to enable anyone out there, but I, I um, coming. I mean, being more serious, it is a good thing because knowing what's in the software is a great thing. You you want to know that, and or at least have access to it. If you're doing business with a company, I think it's probably good to know as well. I don't think that I can't think of any harm in doing this unless you do um, in, in setting this up because it's just a good thing to have anyway, and. Um, like you were saying, it, the government is putting this out there, and like like you said, if you do business with the government, you may as well just get on board with this. You're going to have to eventually, so you may as well just get this done. So that way, you know, it, you don't have to worry about it. And this follows all the way down the chain. So if your customers do business with the government and you're selling them software, you're selling your customers software, and then your customers will do some type of service for the government, you will have to provide that as well. So it's not just the ones doing direct business with the government. It goes all the way through the food chain. So if at any level you're involved, your company is involved, you will have to provide that. Um, again, this is probably just for the administrative overhead of having to prepare this document beforehand. You'll probably want to get legally involved so that you don't make any claims that you can't follow through, but it should be a one-off. You should be able to do that, make sure that you get everything in, in written form and then just use that document for subsequent times. Um, the, the great benefit here is not so much in the additional paperwork, of course, but the, 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 the main benefit here is in the standardization of processes so that all the companies will have to look at the way they create software, the way they create their services and everything is set up. And they will have to provide a unified view over that. And when you look at the document created by one company, the one from a different company shouldn't be too different. So it should make it easier for someone that's not an expert in the field or not as in-depth in whatever you're building to at least get an idea of how similar or how different different companies are approaching this and at least take notice of the the disparities that might be otherwise hidden in the process. So if, for example, one is actually doing security audits and the other one isn't, that should be a red flag. Okay, so having that written down, having a form of some standardized form around that is actually pretty good. Yeah, I think another thing, uh, or actually a couple of points, but related points to this is that I feel like it's gonna force, at least in a small category, some documentation inside companies to be more up-to-date. Um, obviously, um, for some companies out there, they're so busy and you know who you are, you know, updating documentation is hard. You should always update documentation, but at least here, you're kind of forced into this, um, one aspect of your documentation to make sure that, you know, you have a list of everything in the bill of materials. But I think a, a trap you want to avoid here is, um, just checking the box, you know, setting this up, creating that document, everything's fine. You, you did it. You're ready to go. And then, you know, two years down the road, if there's an audit or anything like that, you present that document, but you have two years of hoping that your developers have told you, the manager of everything that's going in there. You really don't want a disparency there. Um, you, you do need to know when something's added because it, in, in my mind, it's often the case that a new library might be used. Maybe a developer sees something like, hey, maybe if we use this, it's going to make the application run faster, or maybe we'll use uh, another uh, tool for testing, for unit testing or whatever. Um, so so new components are injected into this um, quite regularly, unless you're one of those companies where your software is pretty much on maintenance mode, which I, I, I would be interested to see the statistics. I don't think that's going to be very many of you out there. So, um, you know, if, if something new is added, you're going to have to make sure that's um, also added to that documentation. 
I actually don't think that is that holds true for the whole development process. There are there is a lot of variance when you're starting the project, when you're looking into new libraries, new ways to do things that you want to do with your program, and you're not yet set in stone on exactly which ones you're going to use. So you might try one and another and another and a different version. But after some time, when your when your software is already mature and you have a couple of versions out, then you tend not to do such drastic changes to your application. Right. So right. you might not include new libraries at that point. You might just refine the way you use the ones that are already included because you'll eventually run into breaking changes that will affect the way that you deal with data from past versions or something like that. Um, so personally, I think that happens more on the initial stage of uh, the development process rather than the mature phase. But so that, would this that include... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Does this include, like, you know, I mentioned testing, but now I'm kind of wondering because, like, for in my case, I worked with a lot of startups, which could be why I had the mindset of it of it changing. I do agree. Once software is mature, it's pretty much set in stone. But you never know. You know, you could always add something. I did work on one project once where it was kind of like that. There were there weren't really anything any new components being added. Except they had me work on one component we added uh, to to the um, system. We added selenium, selenium, selenium. If you don't know what that is, uh, for anyone listening, it's a, a method of testing where you can actually simulate an actual web browser like Google Chrome, Firefox. So if you're one of those companies where the software you develop is exposed through a web browser, then of course you know you know you get someone who says hey i have this bug and you know something's not working and then you try it and it works fine and then you come to find out it could be a browser difference or something like that so uh, selenium allows you to automate that but um that's how you test the software it's not a library as far as i remember anyway that you actually include in the software it's just how you test the software so i'm kind of curious where that line is drawn if it's not actually in the software but used to develop the software do you have to mention that too or just what's in it it probably won't hurt to include that i assume they want to know more about the security side of it if you do security audits what software do you use to run it how do you run the tests what's the test environment how right how are the results tallied how is the, the what the scope is if it includes the whole system or just the application itself um I believe it's more focused on the, the security side of it, but this is just my reading of it. This is legalese, this is <laughs> this is based off an executive order that has thousands of pages. So yeah. yeah they might that, have something uh, there included there that touches on what you just mentioned and obviously I didn't read the whole thing. Obviously I tried yeah. to retain my sanity. Um but <laughs> right. but yeah. From my understanding, from the, the initial reading that I did on this, it does seem to be more focused on the, the cybersecurity aspect of it. In the in the situation that I mentioned, it was more more along the lines of uh, the software was you know in maintenance mode for the most part, and they already had a testing mechanism that they were using. I forgot what they were using, but they had some uh, testing software they were using. And what ended up happening is that a lot of bugs were still coming in about browser differences, despite that. So. Um, after some investigation came to the conclusion that the testing methods or software, whatever they were using, just wasn't really up to the task. So then that's when uh, Selenium got added in. And I say that different every single time I say it, apparently. But um, but that got, you know, um, that became a topic. And then we went with that after some deliberation. So in that case, it's a new component, maybe not necessarily in the software, but something new was added to the uh, process of developing it. So I agree with you. If you are at all in doubt whether or not you should mention something, just mention it. Um, I don't really feel like what testing software you use is really a trade secret or anything like that. And this isn't something you're going to put on your website anyway. So um, I, I feel like if, if you err on the side of caution, just keep it up to date. Um, just include the things that you use and um, you should be in good shape. Yeah. And it's good that you mentioned that there are provisions there as well that mention that some of the information can remain classified. So some of the information that you describe in that document that you might not want to be made public can remain not public. So, yeah. And, and anyone who deals with this kind of thing, I mean, they probably are also aware of these forms that, uh, especially for MSPs, they get that 
in order to win the deal, you know, win the client, you got to answer the questions and it'll ask you things like, you know, please describe your process for security patches and how quickly you will tell people if you have a breach, how many breaches have you had? Um, please describe your software process. And then when I get those forums, it's always um, a little humorous because it's like, please describe your software development process. I don't develop software, so NA. Um, please describe uh, your process. I don't develop. I don't develop. <laughs> It's like I'm a media company, right? You want to know what rendering software I use, but you know everybody has to fill out these forms. And I know sometimes it could be a pain in the neck for the people that are dealing with this because you're also overwhelmed. But at the same time, you know it is what it is. So um, documentation is good, and transparency is also good. So I'm actually for it. Yeah. So uh, the reason I brought this up in the podcast is that this will inevitably affect all the, the enterprises and all the companies wherever they are located in the world. Because as long as the U.S. makes this a federal mandate, the companies don't just do business in the U.S. So they will have that document available if they are doing business elsewhere in the world. So, yeah. Yep. At the, after some time, every single company will have something like this in place. So if your clients have been asking you recently for this bill of materials and you have no idea what they're talking about or why so many of your clients are asking about this all of a sudden, well, now you know, because that's uh, that's why you're getting these. So I know there's some MSPs out there that might be listening to this or people from MSPs and they're like, why am I getting all this these requests for a bill of materials? Well, here you go. Now you know why. So on times. So, moving on to your topic of choice today. Yeah, and it's it's a topic that we kind of talked about a bit before we hit the record button, but we might have spent like, what, 45 seconds or something because I don't want to, um, you know, have too much of a spoiler. Sometimes it's fun when I don't even know the way the conversation is going to go. And when we talked about it, it kind of seemed like um, maybe there's, there's a lot more to it than I um, thought off the top of my head. But the subject in particular, if you missed the title is uh, around the claim that might be less relevant now, but um, has been a claim for a long time. When people ask, why isn't Linux more of a target? Is it because Linux is more secure than Windows? Is that why it sees fewer malwares out there? Um, And then usually the common rebuttal is that, um, well, Linux is less of a target. It, you know, everyone's running Windows. So of course that's what they're going to go after. And I think what kind of makes this a longer discussion, because if it was simply like, uh, yeah, it's a myth moving on, then we can't even make an episode about that. But there's so many different components about this, because one school of thought that I had is, um, and as long as I can remember, I don't know how long ago, because I remember at one point, Linux was not that popular, even on servers, like I would look like when I was first starting out. Um, And this is interesting, like I was looking for Linux jobs, just to find out like what's out there, and I might see one you know, at any given time, um, or possibly zero, because I would see like a bunch of Windows admin jobs, but not really much in the way of um, Linux admins. And I would see like probably two Unix admin jobs for every one Linux admin job I would see. Um, But at the time, you know, people would say, yeah, if it's not that popular, shouldn't go into it. But I did. And I, and then Linux just skyrocketed and became super powerful um, or popular. So always been powerful. And it's taken over the server market because uh, last I checked, it was 70-something percent of the servers out there um, are running Linux. So that's been the case for quite a while. I just don't remember how long, but it's been that way for quite a while. And so what that means to me is that Linux has been a big target for a long time. So when people make the claim that you know Linux is less of a target, it's just not as frequent, I'm like, well, Linux is actually the most deployed operating system in history. I mean, your TV, your IoT things, your Linux servers, um, Linux is everywhere. So it's actually a huge topic. But before the um, we hit the record button, we started to kind of dissect it a little bit. And it's not quite that simple, is it? Yeah, there are so many layers to this. Um, and you forget the, the most used platform for Linux, which is your phone. Android has an installed uh, user base yeah. in the billions and that's Linux under the hood. I so, keep forgetting yeah. that, not because I, I don't know that that's true. I just have this very biased opinion. I'm going to be completely honest about this, that I don't consider Android Linux, even though it absolutely is. It's it's a fact. It's Linux. The Linux kernel is absolutely a part of it. But Android is kind of like this platform where they obscure everything. So now 
their version of Linux, you could argue, isn't quite the same thing as all the modifications that they've made, although it is the same thing, it's complicated. But then you also get in, Android users get into this uh, situation where Android on a Samsung isn't quite the same thing as on a um, you know reference Google Pixel device, for example, and they look completely different. So there's all this fragmentation, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a, a absolutely huge uh, vector for this, and that's uh, ginormous, actually. Yeah. And you were mentioning the 70% the on servers on the, the high-performance computing on the top 500 computers. It's much, much higher than that. It's in the high 90s that are running Linux. Um, but again, there are so many layers to this. Um, the type of target is different. So is different. When you're targeting servers with uh, malware, with some kind of attack, and when you're targeting desktop computers running Windows, your target profile will be different. In one, you might be looking for more valuable data, large amounts of valuable data, or some critical service or something like that. On Windows, you're just interested in targeting the highest number of users that you can. You want to, to spread your malware as far as possible, as, as widely as possible, to get the most revenue back. So if you're deploying ransomware, you don't want to affect just one system. You don't want to attack just one server to deploy ransomware. You want to deploy it on hundreds of thousands of user machines and maybe some of them will pay you. Um, it's right. a matter of numbers there. And that's actually one of the aspects where the, the actual deployed, the number of deployed systems matters. And you have much more desktop systems than you have servers, even though the percentage, percentage on servers is higher for Linux. Um, so it's all a matter of crunching the numbers. Um, and that's why the, the malwares are different for one and the other. That's right. why you don't see exactly the same types of malware affecting one of the other. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I do feel at one time, um, Windows was a lot easier to affect, infect because the I remember back in the Windows XP days, I I, I thought it was Service Pack 2 that was the first, the first one that had a... Um, firewall built in, unless it was a version of Windows 2000, because I know Windows 2000 was supported in parallel back then. Um, so I, I remember when Windows XP was the latest and greatest for Windows users, there, there was in the news, seemingly every month, there was something being discussed about, you know, some kind of worm going around that were impacting those systems. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, um, but it does seem like, you know, I got to call it like I see it. I think Windows has made a lot of improvements compared to how they've been. Doesn't mean they're perfect either, but um, it is what it is. But then as the um, industry changes, so too do the uh, threat actors that are creating these malwares, to your point, because um, you know as the world changes, the uh, threat actors change and the security professionals also change to keep up, keep up with them. So it's like this ecosystem almost. And then it's the way that the, the operating systems have evolved. Linux from the get-go had this separation between privileged and unprivileged users that was actually very clearly defined and you had to clearly move from one to the other to actually deploy software, to install updates and all of that. On Windows, the user was the administrator. Um, I'm talking about the first Windows versions, of course. But that that mindset around Windows, it, it moved along with the different versions. So, right. again... It wasn't something that just stayed the same on the original versions and was improved on the next one. So, yeah. Yeah, we go from Windows XP, which had a lot of, uh, you know, vulnerabilities in the news at the time. Then we go right into Windows Vista and it gets lower because, you know, everyone's too busy trying to keep their computers running long enough to get malware. Um, of course, I had to just put that joke out there because, you know, Windows Vista, right? Um but the the RAM requirements were so high there. But but actually, you know, there were improvements and things were changing. But then also another thing to keep in mind too is that stripped down Linux kernels are very common. So it's also the case that Linux isn't the same thing from one device to the next. Whereas Windows, is, you know, I would argue would have more in common um, between workstations and servers. Sure, they're different versions of the operating system. But when you have IoT devices. It's like, oh, this device is running slow. Let's just compile the kernel with far fewer modules and cut as much of it out as we possibly can to 
lower the footprint. And then if a threat actor is infecting Linux systems, they get to IOTs uh, devices, which generally are probably pretty easy to infect anyway. But maybe they might run into a situation where the module or whatever it is they're trying to infect is just not present because of the footprint. And then the Linux kernel is going to be different from one device to the next. So I could understand that's also a bit hard to, hard to navigate for some threat actors too, because that's just a lot to um, peel away, you know, as they dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Even though we call it Linux that's run, and it's running on IoT, it's running on your Raspberry Pi, it's running on your mainframe, if mainframes are still a thing. Um, when you actually delve into it, they have different modules, they have different uh, settings in place, they have different services running. So whatever you craft for one doesn't directly translate into an attack on the, on the other one, like you said. Um, on Windows, that's not the case. And again, this might be something good for the security standpoint, but from the adoption and the, the widespread use, it's actually mm -hmm. a detract. It's probably one of the reasons why we're still waiting for the year of the Linux desktop. Um, yeah, I did. I don't know if my audience uh, probably knows this, but I uh, did a video about that subject and, and made the claim that it's just not going to happen. So, and that's okay. And I'm okay with that because I think it's a good thing. Linux is what it is, but uh, yeah. that's another story altogether. So I'll get off. And that actually, platform. this thing back here, the, the Steam Deck, it's probably one of the, the best motivators to get that year of the Linux desktop going. Um, the way that this is spreading and the way that this is selling so well, it's actually a pretty good driver for Linux. Um, it's so amazing that I can't even believe it exists with as much quality yeah. as it has. Like I, um, you know, I'll get off this soapbox soon, but I'll just say this. Like I, you know, installed the Steam client on a Linux desktop and I tried to run uh, Near Automata, which is one of my favorite games ever. And it barely runs at all. It like the frame rate is super low. It's like a clip show. It's like a, a it almost looks like the mist version where you have static images that just kind of like, you know, here's a still image, then it moves to another image. And that's what the game is like. But that's not what Nier Automata is. It's an action game, action RPG. Just does, doesn't work for me on Linux. But on the Steam Deck, it works fine. It's like, what? Like, it's perfect. It works. Like, what did you guys do? Um, so yeah, you, you, to your point, I mean, you could even argue that considering there is a desktop mode on the Steam Deck, if Steam Deck does get super popular even more than it already is, then maybe um, I might be proven wrong about the year of the Linux desktop. You never know. Yeah, and at the same time, it provides a stable platform for your attacks. So if you're trying to attack Linux, this is a pretty good distribution to go after because it's so widely spread. Everybody, okay, not everybody, but lots of people are using it. So it gets the same exposure as Windows systems. There are obviously not as many Steam Decks as Windows systems, that's not the claim I'm making. But right. the, the fact that it's a standard, that it's the same on all the Steam Decks, it makes it more of a juicy target than random distribution X and then random distribution Y that has different packages and different network management tools and different uh, services running. Um, having the same target, it's better for an attacker so that you don't have to craft 20 different tools to get the same result. So, yeah, it's yeah. both a positive and a negative at the same time. Then also you have to define the year of the Linux desktop. And I feel like that definition could be different from one person to the next. Like somebody might uh, think of it as when Linux becomes the dominant operating system. I think that's probably going to be the most popular opinion about what that means. But then someone could make the claim that the year of the Linux desktop is when it's on equal ground compared to uh, Mac and Windows and and Actually, that's the world that I would like when you have the, you know, three operating systems that are primary and you have to pick one, but then the competition between them uh, might result in some great features. Um, but yeah, that's, that'll be a different discussion altogether if that happens. If we do an episode about, um, you know, Linux desktop malware that is taking over something and it's everywhere, then we can reference this episode when we were talking about it, I guess. Yeah. On the server side of things, it's not that it's less of a target, it's more of a specialized target, more of a specific target, so that you're not so much trying to get all the Linux servers, you identify the ones that you want to get in and you go after just those specific servers. Um, you might try to first understand where the critical data is stored, where the critical services are housed, and those are the systems that you're going to go after. You won't target the other 800 systems that are running Linux as well. So it's not that it's less of a target, it's more of a specialized target.
Right. And I, I feel like if a, a day ever comes that someone creates a worm or something that spreads easy, that infects, you know, many Linux systems out there and brings them to their knees, I feel like we're going to find out real quick, if you didn't already know how important Linux is, um, if that day ever comes and then servers are dropping left and right or something, um, that would be like a very, very bad uh, time period. But you are right. I mean, there's just different distributions and different, you know, quirks or differences from one server to the next. Whereas with Windows Server, it's like, are you running, uh, which version of Windows Server are they running? Oh, yeah, they're running this version. And so too are, you know, a bunch of other people. And um, it's generally, although, yeah, you could choose what to install on your Windows Server. Under the hood, it's the same thing, pretty much. So there, there is a lot of complexity here. But I also kind of feel like as much as it might be harder to attack all Linux servers, I do kind of feel like it's a target that is at least uh, discussed because that would have a very big footprint if they were able to make that kind of thing happen. And obviously, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to do this, but um, when they say it's less of a target, it's, it's in my mind, false. It is absolutely a huge target, but an easy target that's another story altogether. So it might be a great target, but maybe too great of a target at times. This actually touches on a different topic. I know we've mentioned this before and you don't agree with my view on this, but the reason, not the reason, the fact that the Linux kernel is open source makes it ex expo actually exposes the Linux kernel to all the, the risks associated with open source. Mm -hmm. When you have the source readily available, it's not just readily available for the developers and the ones that want to add features or look for bugs in there. It's also readily available for the malware actors. So take, for example, curl. It's an open source project, a downloader, very widely used, has been around for over 20 years, 25 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Everybody uses that. It's on the Mars, one of the Mars rovers for sending images back to, to Earth. And it doesn't matter exactly which vulnerability it was, but last year there was a vulnerability found in one of, uh, in a part of Curl's code that had been in the code for 20 years. It had been included in a, com in a commit from 2001 or 2002. It doesn't matter the exact date. It had been there for over 20 years. So it begs the question, who was looking at the code during those 20 years? Um, it's very hard to be the first to do something, to be the first in all of mankind to have seen that mistake. Sure, right. someone will eventually be the first to discover a security issue and file a CVE and get his name on the CVE sheet and all of that. If you're a mal if you're a threat actor, you want to, to find those bugs before anybody else and you will never report them. So in those 20 years that the bug was present, and it wasn't something very complex, it was actually something that could be easily or as easy as possible when you're talking about looking at code. It was something that was discoverable. So if you tell me that in 20 years, in a, in a piece of software that's as popular as curl, no one had found that bug, I find that very hard to believe. Yep. And the Linux kernel follows the same principle. I find it very hard to believe when there is a high-profile vulnerability in a very used portion of the kernel, say, the Berkeley packet filter, the BPF, which mm -hmm. is a part of the, the Linux kernel that has a vulnerability like every other week. Um, and you tell me that, okay, they find this new critical vulnerability that has been included in the code base for four years, five years, something like that. It's very hard from a security standpoint, first, to believe that it's true. It has only been found now and the patch is available and we need to patch all the systems. Somebody has probably seen that before. Somebody has probably tried to exploit that before. And the thing with vulnerabilities that are not publicly disclosed is that no security tool that you use will ever have a, a signature for it. There will be no information about indicators of compromise. There will be no way to actually detect it. So your vulnerability scanner will look at your system. Because it doesn't know about the vulnerability, it will never report it and it will come back that the system is secure. So. That's also one of the risks. It's less of a target, sure, but maybe there it has been attacked in some specific situations and nobody knew about it. It right. hasn't been detected yet. Um, we know for a fact, because there have been many leaks, even the Snowden leaks, that intelligence agencies 
do regularly hurt vulnerabilities in open source software and other software. Of course, this isn't specific to open source, but the fact that it's open makes it more available and it's easier to find the vulnerabilities. And intelligence agencies have been hurting vulnerabilities for years. And right. when they are publicly disclosed, they simply stop using it. So, yeah, it's open source. People are looking at it. Vulnerabilities are being found and not reported. So claiming it, that it's less of a target, that might be a jumping a bit too far here. Yeah. There are um, many, many, many variables in play here. There really are. And um, so I'm going to try to unpack a, a more than a few things there because that's some really good stuff there. So when you have any debate, in this case, whether the source code is, um, it's a good thing that it's fully open or or it leads to potential problems too. When you have any debate, I don't care if it's computer related or not, you know, um, it's a debate because there's truth on both sides. If there was, if it was a situation where um, one side is just so obviously correct, there's really no reason to debate anything. So anytime you have a discussion like this, it's because there's some legitimacy on both sides. And when it comes to source code, it is a double-edged sword, in my opinion. Um, my main point is always, it's always a it's always better to have it than not to, but that does not imply that having it makes you have any specific amount of default security. Um, can it harm you? Yes. Can it save you? Yes, it absolutely can um, go against you or before you. Um, so I think when you when you look at it through that lens, it, it's very complicated, but I, I like to use the analogy of a um, lock on a door. You could for example, steal the blueprints for how that company's locks are made and understand how they're made. Um, but that doesn't give you the key to unlock the door. It might give you a, you might notice a flaw in their blueprints or, or maybe one of the actuators aren't as big as the other ones or something like that. I don't know. I'm just making up stuff here, but um, that'll help you get in, you know, break into the door, but it's not going to allow you to produce a key to open the door unless someone does something stupid and they don't lock the door then you just walk right in much in the same way if your password is abc123 and you have password authentication enabled via ssh it may as well be an open door right so um when it comes to the open source debate i often use that analogy because um one side will argue that having the source code is a negative and they'll say, you know, bring up some um, idea uh, ideas around their point, and then you know the counterpoints will be there as well. But when you look at it with the lock analogy, I feel like it fits because again, you you can understand the blueprints and how that lock is built, and it could even be an open source lock company that has their blueprints out there. I, I don't know if that ever happens, but even with that, it doesn't get you easy access by just having the blueprints. You still have to make use of that, right? So. Um, and then to your point about um, when people, you know, want to expose a system, they might have a vulnerability that is not well known or not known at all, or they might just actually let someone know about that vulnerability and then it um, becomes public knowledge. But then if you think about it, you'll have contests like own to own where someone really wants that really awesome laptop that's up there on the altar. So um, they're going to like try to um, hack it and get in and get the rewards or someone that wants reward money. So they, in general, so they make the vulnerability publicly known because they want that, you know, $60,000, $100,000 payout that a company's offering for um, software vulnerabilities. Um, and, and that would obviously lead to those being public domain, but then you have the other side where there's people that will not want to release that, that information out there because they don't want that, you know, those things to be patched because if they get patched, then they lose their in. So they might even go as far as to make sure that they don't use that vulnerability too often because they don't want it to show up on the radar at all. Because the minute they try to hack 10,000 servers, then every security person on the planet is going to be looking at this like, why is this spiking right now? We need to do something about it. Then they can reverse engineer it. But then if it's just a one-off here and there, and they have like, 15 different one-offs, then they'll just keep them to themselves until um, someone else finds it and exposes it. But I have to imagine there's people out there looking at the Linux source code and looking through millions and millions of lines of code. I don't know how they stay awake through all this, right? But 
looking for some kind of thing that they can use. And if they find it, they probably can keep it to themselves and use it. So there's also the mindset of the, the, the threat actor that plays into this too, because they, again, might not want that information to be known, or maybe they do. They just want that prize money. It's, it's probably going to be one or the other. Absolutely. Um, Greg K.H., one of the kernel gurus, he has this great presentation. I usually refer to it. It's called CVs are, CVs are Dead, Long Live the CV. It's on YouTube. It's from 2019. It's a very great piece of content. Mm-hmm. In there, he explains that the kernel security team fixes new fixes security issues every single week. They never announce it. They don't publish CVs around it. But you should always take the new version of the kernel because it includes security fixes. And that's great. You should always update. You should always be on the latest version. We say that every single week. Patching is your number one tool to defend against the type of things. Right. That said, threat actors will actually have the resources and the know-how to compare to compare the two different kernel versions, the one from last week and the one from this week. They can get the diff, the diff files from both. They can look at the other commits and exclude the code that is not security related. And they will be able to identify the security issues that were fixed there is basically zero chances that regular Linux users will even have the know-how on how to do that every single week. Right. But the threat actors do. The threat actors have the resources and the know-how to actually pull that off and find the vulnerabilities that were fixed. And the risk there is for all the people who don't update the Linux kernel that now have systems that are vulnerable to vulnerabilities that they are not aware of, that are not made public. So there is always this trade-off here. And this isn't just a hypothetical, because remember Log4j? Last December, really big vulnerability. Everybody was screaming and patching during their vacations, and vacations were being cancelled and all of that. Really big issue. Cloudflare, a couple of weeks after that, released some information about it. Cloudflare is a very big proxy service. They do lots of things, but they have very big visibility into the global internet traffic. So they can look at the logs and they can look for patterns about ex- different exploits. So what they did was, a few weeks after the fact, they went back and they looked at the logs related to Log4j. And eight days before the public disclosure, they found exploits being attempted. Okay, so eight days. This isn't a hypothetical. This isn't just a scenario. This actually happens in the real world. Vulnerabilities that are not made public are being used to target systems. And the thing is, again, all the security tools, all the security measures that you can have in place will not protect you against vulnerabilities that they don't know about. And we don't know, didn't know about Log4j until eight days after that. So right. being open, being an open platform, an open source platform with open source components and all of that is great. There are, I'm not against open source in any shape, way or form. I really love it. I like the way that the whole ecosystem works around it. But there are upsides and downsides to it. So this is one of the downsides. The fact that the code is open helps not just the good guys, but it also helps the threat actors finding the threats sooner. And they won't report it. They won't make anybody else aware of that. There's a whole economic model around their, what they are doing and hoarding vulnerabilities and selling them to the highest bidder. And until this moment, it just operates much better than all the bug bounties programs put together. Yeah, it's um, and those are some really great points too. I think it, in, when it all comes down to it, uh, when you're on the outside of all this, you know, it, it's easy to kind of just say open source is always great or open source is always bad, but there's just so much more to it than that. And my opinion has been that open source is awesome and it's great and I love it. But the main difference is that how you secure it is different. Doesn't mean it's more secure. It just means that how you go about securing it is different. So um, internal, you know, companies internally will maybe go through and do whatever tests they do with their proprietary software and source code to secure it, we're not going to know what exactly they're doing, but then code that's in the open um, might be audited by someone else outside of the company that just maybe even a security student at college might, and this is actually probably a very awesome project if you're in school for this, is just to actually look at the source code and write about it and, um, and, and find some things that could absolutely be fun. But how you secure it is different. Open code can be audited by more people. Doesn't mean it will. 
Um, I've seen many projects out there. And I can't remember the name of it, but I was looking for something the other day that I, I, I used, you know, years ago. And then when I found it, I'm like, oh, it hasn't been updated in like six years. It's open source, right? It's great. It's not secure because, you know, God knows what kind of vulnerabilities are in that code. It hasn't even been touched in that amount of time. And it doesn't have, and it never had the vulnerability, the, uh, exposure the popularity to be a target for an auditor to even want to spend five minutes with it so there's that too and then on github you have like i don't know how many um projects that are open and the code is there and the might be updated and secure it might be legacy and just someone forgot about it and just left left their account open and went off to other things and now that code is out there and um you just have to be mindful of the practical difference for your your company and make that decision for your company. I feel you're going to, when you look at it, probably enjoy the fact that it can be audited more and you have more you know, visibility into how it works. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna save you from a um, massive breach. You know, that absolutely still happens. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the number of projects on GitHub. I'm actually giving a presentation at uh, Open Source Automation Days in Munich next week, and I will mm -hmm. be talking exactly about this. So I actually looked at the numbers just a couple of days ago. There are 86 million projects hosted on GitHub and 54 million developers registered there. And most of the projects wow. and most of the accounts are basically stale. So nobody logs into those accounts, nobody looks at those projects. And I just um, I just predicted that as being the case just based on what I've seen personally, which another, you could argue is just the ones that I happen to look at, but it actually seems like uh, that confirms everything I thought. Another very interesting point there is that over 90% of the projects have a buzz factor of one or two. Um, the buzz factor is the number of people that can get hit by a buzz without the project dying. So buzz factor of one or two means that they have one or two main committers or just one or two committers total. So it's a one-man project. Those projects, they have no code security reviews. They can't have because they don't have the people to do it. If you're the one creating the code and you're the one reviewing it, you won't see the mistakes that you put in. You'll see what you wanted to be there in the code. Right. Um, so there's this blindness that uh, that is created. Like I, um, I swear that semicolon was absolutely yeah. there. And I looked at that line you know, a hundred times and never saw a problem with it. And it's a darn semicolon missing at the end. It happens all yeah. the time. And again, the vast majority of open source ecosystem is like that. It's projects that are one person only or just a couple of people maintaining it. And then they get pulled in by very large projects that have lots of people using them like Apache, like Spark, like all those different projects that have all the followers and all of that in GitHub. Well, the vast majority has none, okay? But a security bug in one of those that has none will affect the big ones if they pull it as a dependency. So this whole dependency chain, this ties into the software bill of material sync. It's relevant because of that. It's relevant because it's an issue that creeps up over the this chain. Um, so yeah, Linux is less of a target, might not be the most accurate way to to describe this. The operating system as itself is less reported as a target, obviously because it has less installed base on the desktop, but when it's the target, it's probably a better target, it's a juicier target for opponents because they know that's where the critical data resides, they know that's where the critical services are. So when they are targeting that, they will be looking at that exactly. Right, yep. I completely agree. It, it's just not as simple as some uh, journalists out there might make it. There's a lot more to this. And um, yeah, I absolutely I'm in full agreement there. So, you know, I'll I, I always feel like I, I believe you feel as well. Open source is better. It doesn't mean bulletproof. It requires the administrator to not do something silly and leave an open door or an easily opened door. And um, yeah. So security is a big topic, which is why we have this podcast. And it's just going to keep on getting more convoluted from here, I'm sure. Absolutely. This is the, the security issues will not go away. And, and right. it, like we said last week, it doesn't matter how good your security is. You shouldn't be lax on the security, obviously. But it doesn't really matter how good it is if your users click on email links. So... <laughs> You can protect all you want, as long as the users are not 
in the right mindset that they don't need that they can't make those types of mistakes all of your protection will go down the drain but that's true for any type of system it's not linux specific it's not windows specific it's a user problem yeah and i've read in the i might be butchering this quote but i i read this book called demon which um is a two-part novel it, it's actually not recent it was a story about a Unix demon that takes over the government is great. Um, but then in that, and one of the things that in that book that I liked is that it's uh, realistic with, with how they describe, um, you know, what the hackers are doing. Yet they'll talk about somebody um, executing a SQL injection, for example. But one quote in there was like, there is a such thing as uh, perfect security. The quote was like, um, if you want perfect security, um, don't use a computer, don't own a computer, and don't turn on a computer. And then you have perfect security. Which also means you're probably very, very bored at that point. <laughs> and a very lonely one as well. Right. But still, the absolute weakest link in the chain, for sure. Um, yeah. We all can right. stay here and argue about users all day. I would be very happy to do that, but yeah, we Maybe one day we'll hear war stories from... Uh, the mindset of the system administrator, which normally we, you know, this is obviously a security podcast, but it, one day maybe it'll be good just to have a one-off special thing where we just kind of talk about some of the uh, more interesting um, mysteries and secure of, of anything, even security related that we've actually encountered. But like you said, we could do this all day, but I think we've, um, we've talked about our main topic and we also caught up a bit on the news. I was thinking by now we'd have more news than that on those different stories, but I'm sure that's coming and we'll be um, returning to previous stories anyway. So um, on your end, do you have anything else that you wanted to talk no, about? No, I'm good for today. Um, you're still waiting on the Patreon story, right? Yeah, I, I was looking, I've been looking at that too. And it's, it's just strange how quiet that's been with as many eyes on it. Usually people start, pulling out details and I'm not saying that no one did that people absolutely did that but you know we can only cover things that are um for the most part that are confirmed we can talk about alleged stories too but there's just so many of these um they're doing this they're they're doing that and they're doing that and the next thing you know they're planning an alien invasion okay we're done um <laughs> it's like we got to stick to the facts and um I'm I'm thinking more facts will definitely come about the Patreon thing especially considering that while Patreon was letting their security team go, like at that point and also shortly after, these breaches that we talked about came up in the news and the timing couldn't be better because at one point we're talking about the security team being let go and then there's some high profile breaches that were uh, being discussed in the news. So um, I, I have to say there's probably some very interesting conversations happening internally at Patreon that I just wish I could hear, but you know, uh, we'll cover it if we hear more. Absolutely. So yeah. thanks everybody for joining. It was a pleasure, like every single episode. And yeah. we talk to you soon. Until the See next later. one. Bye.